You are now listening to the January 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, and you are listening to another program in our series, The Attributes of God. So far in our series, we have studied 12 incommunicable attributes of God and 4 communicable attributes. And today we will be studying the next communicable attribute, and it is the righteousness of God. But what exactly does the word righteous mean? According to Vine's Biblical Dictionary, the word righteous is interchangeable with the word just, and just is defined as righteous, a state of being right or right conduct, judged whether by the divine standard or of human standards of what is right. Referring to God, it designates the perfect agreement between his nature and his acts, in which He is the standard for all men. Now, Vines defines righteous as just, without prejudice or partiality, such as the judgment of God, of his judgments, of his character as judge, and of his ways and doings. God's ways are perfect, which gives him all authority to judge people, nations, and the world, as well as the prince of this world. So let's take a look at some Bible verses to give us a clearer understanding of the word righteous. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is writing to this church about how he speaks proudly of them among other churches because of their perseverance and faith in the midst of all their persecutions and afflictions, which they have endured. In verse 5, he writes, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. But Jesus also talks about the judgment of individual people in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, where he states, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Hmm, now there is something to meditate on. There are also a few verses that talk about God's judgment of the nations. In Joel chapter 3, verse 2, God prophesies through Joel, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Righteousness and judgment are written together frequently in the book of Revelation. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls, and the great white throne judgment for all non-believers. Even the tribulation saints praise God of his righteous and true ways in Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. But let's look at Revelation chapter 16, 
where the bowls of wrath are being poured out. And in verse 5, the third angel is pouring out his bowl into the rivers and springs. And John writes, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you, who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. And finally, the judgment of Satan after the tribulation and after the 1,000-year reign of Jesus, John writes in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now let us briefly look in Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. It defines righteous as acting in accord with divine or moral law, to be free from guilt or sin. God's ways are right, perfect, and true, and he judges us accordingly. Because of the fall of Adam into sin, we can never be righteous on our own. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we are covered by his blood. So when God the Father sees us through Jesus, he sees us righteous. Just as John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are made righteous as we confess our sins and are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Then God the Father sees us clean and righteous. And did you know there is a crown of righteousness? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing his last letter from prison, knowing he was going to die soon. He tells Timothy in verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May we be encouraged by Paul's words as we fight the good fight, keep the faith, and look forward to Jesus' appearing. God bless you all. Goodbye. My sin 
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. 
Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delf and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we had a great conversation on how our life-shaping events have lingering influences. We also talked about the human and eternal perspectives on the trials of trust. And on today's podcast, we're going to learn what happens when we experience a crisis and our expectations aren't met. We're also going to hear some encouraging stories from both Alan and Polly about their own crisis and what God did with them in that moment. All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delf, are authors of this book. And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. The root, the shoot, and the fruit. What, can you say more on that? What, what is that all about? Well, absolutely. Everything starts out with a seed. The kingdom of God is like a man who sowed a seed, and that takes that seed takes root. And then that root begins to grow, and then you have the upper part, you know, that comes out. That's the shoot. And then those things create limbs and bear fruit. And so many times what we do is we see the fruit, we see the symptoms we, from the cause. And so, but the cause was, is the real issue. If you can get to that cause, you can stop the fruit, all right? So that would be like, for example, in the Bible, there was this guy by the name of Esau. Mm-hmm. I say he saw Esau on the low side of the seesaw and said, nah, nah. Okay, so <laughs> that's, that's kind of a God thing. But what happened was is that uh, Esau's brother was given a blessing by his father Isaac. And that got him. He was expecting, he was the older brother. Mm-hmm. He was expecting the blessing. He was expecting the accolades. And uh, that began to grow in him and fester in him. And that was like a seed. And pretty soon, it's just taking root in him. So what happened is as this root uh, began to take, uh, turn into a shoot that produced fruit, what happened is there's this great big conflict between these two. And the Bible says that he had a root of bitterness. It all started from a shaping event that created these lingering influences. It all started from a really a crisis. Uh, he was he had expectations that just weren't met. And so when those expectations weren't met, he became bitter and that produced all kinds of conflicts, all kinds of chaos and all through his life. It finally got settled near the end of his life to where we could get this thing kind of settled through conflict resolution there. Mm-hmm. But this thing took fruit and that guided his whole life. And so that's what we mean by the root, the shoot, and the fruit. And you see so many people, Cain and Abel, the great story of Cain and Abel, and so forth, that when when Cain wasn't recognized for his offering, even though God told him, the reason he wasn't recognized is God told him what to sacrifice, and he didn't do it. He gave a lesser sacrifice. And that became an offense to him. And that offense turn went from a 
a root to a shoot and a fruit. You see the same thing in Judas in the Bible. Judas had a problem with money, and then here's Jesus, and he's doing different things with that money and so forth. And then pretty soon, the devil starts talking to him. Then all of a sudden, Satan enters him. That's the root, the shoot, and the fruit. Well, and I think about uh, Jacob and Esau, that even though as their lives progressed, they both became very wealthy and successful and eventually were reconciled more or less, but they had to live completely separately. They agreed to live you know, kind of as far as the East is from the West, but they lived in a sort of armed truce. And down through the generations, when you talk about the fruit, there was a fruit of um, antagonism between Esau's descendants that were called Edom mm-hmm. and Jacob's descendants who were Israel throughout the generations for hundreds of years until finally Edom was completely <laughs> defeated. And so that bitterness that was passed down from generation to generation to generation eventually led to the death of the entire line of Esau. Born to win, conditioned to lose. We've said that so many times. Here were two people, born to win, conditioned to lose by choices. Right. Well, and I think the some of the roots of this that need to be dug out in the counseling process is, you know, what are the vows? What are the judgments? What are the bitternesses that you have from the past that keep making you stumble in the present so you can't get to your future? Um And so I remember a time where I was working for somebody. He was my boss, and it was a ministry situation, and I just got uh, upset over months of him doing it his way, and I had another way. And, of course, my way was right, and his way was (laughs) wrong, just that he happened to be my authority and the leader, and that didn't work out real well. He kept trying to help squeeze me into his mold and I kept trying to squeeze out like mercury I was just going all over the place and so I developed a root of bitterness and something at the same time I developed a swollen optic nerve in my eye and I used to have 2015 vision and now I had uh, it went to 2015 2020 2025 2030 they kept taking pictures of my eye and they said we see that you have a swollen optic nerve, but we don't know the cause. The normal cause of this is a tumor in the brain or MS. Mm, and so that sort of caught me up short. The doctor said to me, you cannot work out while we're going through this process. And so for six months, I didn't work out. I'm on a gymnastic team uh, that was sharing the gospel with people, but I wasn't a gymnast anymore. So my whole identity was confused at that point. So here I am, unreconciled with my boss. I'm on this team that I can't work out anymore. I just feel like I'm on the backside of the desert. And my pastor at that time, um, you know, prayed with me, worked with me, said, how do you think God could get a hold of a little Jewish boy from New York and change his direction (laughs) in his life? And I went, you think think he's doing that? He said, yes, I mean, I would encourage you to get reconciled with your boss because that's probably not a really good thing. And I believe God is using this as a tool to help 
change your life. I went, okay, I never thought of that. And so what happened was I went with a pa- his pastor, my boss's pastor, and his wife and Polly and I went together and I just confessed. So it says, you know, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. So, Alan, you confessed to your boss? I confessed to my boss that I had this ought against him. I was wrong. Mm. Uh, It was the scripture taking the log out of your own eye, although I thought he had many logs in his eyes. (laughs) But I realized God was convicting me. You need to make it right with him. And so I confessed to my boss, and I said, I'm sorry. I've had a terrible attitude. This was wrong. And we were reconciled with many tears and you know, I still had to live with him the way he was. He didn't change a whole bunch. Eventually, uh, I ended up becoming the director of the team. They moved him out of that position. And that was a blessing, but that doesn't always happen. Um, (laughs) And so at the same time, I went to the elders uh, of this evangelical church, and they said, oh, yeah, we we call for the elders. I mean, I thought I was going to have to go to Calvary Temple and see if they could heal me because I didn't know if they actually had elders that prayed for healing in this church because that wasn't their theologies. Oh, no, it, it says call for the elders. So we don't go hooking people, but if you <laughs> want prayer, yes, we have a service after where the elders gather around and pray. And f- I, I said, I know this sounds trite when we were gathered to pray. I said... God is taking a bunch of junk out of my life, both through this relationship that was driving me crazy, that I had to humble myself, and also through this I thing that took me out of the thing that I loved. And I said, just pray God's will be done. And I really meant it. It it, it sounds trite, but I just said whatever he wants to do. And for the first time that week, Dr. Geezer took a picture of my eye and he said, he looked at it, you know, and I'm going, what are you looking at? And he's going, it's the first time this hasn't gotten worse. You know, we're going to have to send you to Mayo Clinic wow. if, if uh, this wasn't getting better because we don't know the cause. And, um, and so just like a perfect bell curve, my relationship with my authority got squared away. My physical infirmity started to heal over the next six months. So it was a whole year that this thing happened, which helped me realize later on in life that (laughs) when you plant a seed, the root uh, is really important, but you can't keep digging it up. You, You gotta let it germinate so that the shoot can come up and then the fruit, and then it can either be bad fruit or it can be good fruit. And by God, I wanted God to bear good fruit in my life, but in order to do that, I had to humble myself I had to be willing to wait on God and trust him instead of myself or the organization or, you know, anything else. When we look at God's word, we sometimes we think it's too simple, don't we? That, oh, if I humble myself and I actually go and do what Matthew 18 says and and to go and confess my sins or James 5, 16 there, Mm -hmm. I'm going to confess my sins to one another. I'm going to ask for someone's forgiveness. And that story is just, it's a beautiful picture of the fruit of mm. God himself, because if what happens if you eat fruit that's not right? Mm. Get sick. Yeah, it's not well, and then mm. you eat old fruit, and it's it's not good either. Mm. Paula, you've got a story with this concept as well. Right. I grew up going to dancing school and, uh, and taking dancing lessons, and when I was uh, in high school, 
our we had a number of young women who were good enough to be professional dancers and one girl who i'll call carol was uh, a little she was older than i was and she she was such a great dancer she was really really beautiful but she was a little bit overweight and uh, we had a friend who was even older who was a rockette at radio city which is this dance line and uh, they do the high kicks and wear these beautiful costumes and carol always wanted to go to new york and audition to become one of these rockettes and this other woman was already there and so everyone said to carol you just need to lose a little weight and you're so good you'll make it so she dieted and she went to new york city and she got there and she was a quarter of an inch too short Mm. and they wouldn't even look at her Mm. it didn't matter how good a dancer she was she couldn't audition because she was too short and and our older friend who was there said carol there are so many other chorus lines and opportunities where you can dance why don't you audition for one of those but no her heart was broken so she was she was feeding herself on this lie that her identity and her success in life was all built around becoming a rockette and she just she couldn't do that she couldn't make it and so she thought it was about her diet and she completely stopped eating she became anorexic and the next time i saw her she was down to about 70 pounds she was a stick she looked like she had just come out of a concentration camp and she was killing herself literally because she could not make it because she was too short which was something that she could not control and instead she the thing that she could control was how much she ate and she was starving herself yeah i mean being vertically challenged myself guys (laughs) you you know i i understand that but at, at the same time as you shared that story polly i was just thinking i just got the sense like god saved her from something from being a rocket he saved her from something of going down a path that he clearly didn't want her to go to and and he used her height or what whatever the circumstances right, but the, were the thing is dustin she was a wonderful dancer and she could have still made it as a dancer and because somewhere else she, somewhere right. else yeah. and, and, and t- taking another avenue so she actually deprived God of the opportunity Mm. to use the talent that he had given her because she didn't get to do it her way. And this is a really important principle of trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not our God that we make up. We pray and say, God, I know I should be whatever, Rockette, president, you know, we pick a figure, uh, a certain figure of money, you know, denomination, three, six, eight, ten figures, you know, whatever it is, we determine what we want. And if we don't get it, we have a choice. We can say, God, I know you're faithful. I know you chose for me not to have this. And I can choose something else. 
The lie is there's nothing else. Mm-hmm. If you don't do it this way, when when I grew up, uh, I was also vertically challenged. I still <laughs> am vertically challenged. <laughs> What's wrong uh, with you guys? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was asking. <laughs> Everybody was, you know, outdoing me. I think Bill Bright said, I'm not short. I'm just wound tight. No. Um, but when I was a little kid, the thing that got people's attention was I learned how to do gymnastics and if I did a flip everyone wow you know that aha and so I thought wow now this is a good place because everyone gives me accolades sure nothing wrong with excelling in gymnastics but the pinnacle of gymnastics would be if you could be an all-around Olympic gymnast so as a kid in fifth grade I'm thinking I'm gonna be an Olympic gymnast I'm gonna go for the goal you know And so as I grew up, I thought that's what I had to be. As a freshman in school, they let um, they uh, that was the first year they allowed freshmen to compete in one event instead of all six Mm. events. And my coach wanted me to go in floor exercise because that was going to be the best thing for the team. And I'm thinking, well, then I can't do all around. Then I can't be an Olympic gymnast. And then I had a choice. Are you going to do what the team needs or are you going to do what you want? And can you survive? And so I ended up, I mean, I ended up becoming all-American floor exercise gymnast. Um, But my identity wasn't totally wrapped up in me as a gymnast because I had come to know the Lord my freshman year. And then I thought, this talent is yours, Lord. This body is yours. If you want to use it for you, I'm going to use it for you as long as I can. Now, go back to when I had my swollen optic nerve. I realized when you work out six days a week, three to four hours a day. I've never had that problem. (laughs) (laughs) When you do that and you have the goal of being a certain level of gymnast and then you dump it for six months, you don't just get back on the horse. I mean, I had to decide then, am I done with gymnastics or do I need to do something else? And I realized how much of my identity was wrapped up in that because you can't do that so much for so long and not have it be that. But ultimately, I said, Lord, I am yours. I I give myself a living sacrifice, whatever you want. And that turned my direction. I ended up getting into counseling. And I love what I do. Mm. And I love where God's put me. And I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You know, Ed, I've never had the the problem of being... Um, tall, dark, and handsome like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do, do you have any final thoughts here on the, on the root, the shoot, and the fruit? Yeah, I, I just want to come back to something Alan said. Um, it's interesting to me that before Jesus could come, somebody had to lay the ax to the root. Mm, that's good. You see, and that yeah. is so true. Before Jesus can come and this I mean sometimes I mean don't get me wrong Jesus can do anything he wants okay? <laughs> <laughs> but there is see we're we've been created to work with God we're co-workers with mm-hmm. him not for him with him and we were we were destined for the throne we were born to rule not just born to be on the dole and so God loves it when we'll do our part so that he can do his part so God sent John the Baptist before, and he laid the ax to the root. That's our part. See, it's my cooperation with God's operation leads to a Jesus revelation. 
and and it's my responsibility to respond to his ability john and if we'll lay the axe start to go for that lay the axe to the root then that's the space that brings draws jesus into it in any crisis remember two entities are always drawn to any crisis god and the enemy god and the liar um, we see that in, in 9-11, two entities. God came in and then all kinds of other stuff came in too. It's a question of who are we going to let in that space. So as we lay the axe to the root, that just like a magnet will draw Jesus right into it. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delf at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week. Listening to Unity in Christ, 
the English Hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcasts on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Moutler of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Outwit, Outlast, Outplay, Part 1. I hope you will have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. And this entire sermon series is built off one verse, and that's really this verse. It's 2 Corinthians 2.11. I want to read what's before it. But this is Paul writing to the Corinthians about somebody that had sinned in their church and was under church discipline. And he said, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And then he adds these words, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so that's where we're going in the next couple of weeks. I hope you're encouraged. It's always intriguing to talk about spiritual warfare, so I hope that you are blessed. Well, how many of you know the name Bobby Fisher? You guys know who Bobby Fisher is? Yes, uh, many of you are familiar with him. I go through stages on YouTube. I love watching documentaries. How many of you are documentary folks? YouTube's fantastic for documentaries. If you, know, if you want to go from the History Channel and just watch it on your computer. I've done all the World War II ones. I love World War II documentaries. I recently got into, I don't know how I ended up on Bobby Fischer, but I watched a bunch of documentaries on Bobby Fischer. Now, if you don't know who he is, he is perhaps the greatest chess player to ever live. He is an American-born chess player who burst onto the scene at a time when the Russians dominated the world chess scene. So back in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, the Russians were kings of chess, and they, take, they took great pride in the fact that they were the best of the best. But that all changed, of course, with the arrival of Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer, was very interesting about him is that he was a prodigy from a very young age um, and quickly rose through the ranks of the chess world. In 1956, at the age of 13 years old, Fisher, Bobby Fisher, young Bobby Fisher, went head-to-head with 26-year-old American chess master Donald Byrne. And this was touted as the game of the century because they were only going to play one game. A match is when you play lots of games, or lots of, a match is when you play more than one game. But this was just one game, head-to-head, and it was called the game of the century. What happened? Well, Donald Byrne made a mental mistake on move number 11. It's fascinating. The, chess, the documentary it t- it literally breaks down every move that they did and why it was important. And on move number 10, he moved a piece forward, and then Fisher went. And then on the very next move, I guess you don't you move the same piece twice in a row. I guess that's a no-no in chess or something. But he moved it back, 
And that was a mistake. And that's all that young Fisher needed for him to win the match. As a matter of fact, what was interesting about this particular match is Fisher sacrificed his queen, which is very rare. He sacrificed his queen in that match, and he still went on to win. And uh, it was, again, the game of the century. A 13-year-old beats an American chess master. Now, Fisher's skills, along with his fame, continued to grow, culminating in 1972 when Bobby Fischer went head-to-head with the very best that the Russians had to offer. And that, of course, is Boris Spassky, if you don't know that name. He was the best of the best when Fischer was rising through the ranks. And these two went head-to-head in the match of the century, the match of the century. They played 21 games head-to-head before the winner was decided. And, of course, young Fischer wrestled the championship away from the Russians. They had held it since 1948. But in 21 games, Fischer beat the Russian champion and became the new king of the chess world. Now, the reason I tell you this is because in much the same way, you and I are in a struggle with an enemy. And here's the key. That is even smarter, more cunning, more crafty, more strategic, more bold than any chess master. And that enemy is very real, very active, and constantly at work to outwit you and me. And that is why we're basing everything in this sermon series off this verse, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Satan wants to outsmart you. He wants to outthink you. He wants to take advantage of you. This is what he wants to do. This is what we are up against. I like the way, by the way, that the the ESV uses the word outwitted. And by the way, ESV up there stands for English Standard Version. It's one of the versions of English versions of the Bible. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Now, what's interesting is other versions use other words to get the point across. Let me show you. For example, the New Living Translation says, So that Satan would not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. So that gives us a little bit fuller definition. The Good News translation says this, in order to keep Satan from getting the upper hand over us, for we know what his plans are. And of course, one more, the New American Standard Bible, this is the one I used through seminary, it says this, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, this probably is the best or closest idea of this word of being outwitted, that Satan wouldn't take advantage of us. And we know that because Paul uses this exact same word in a couple other places. For example, in 2 Corinthians 7-2, Paul says, make room in your heart for us, for we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, and we have taken advantage of no one. Exact same word. And then a little bit later in 2 Corinthians, he says this, did I take advantage of you? Same word. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? So this is the concept behind this word outwit. It's that he wants to outwit us. He wants to take advantage of us. He wants to outthink us, outsmart us, and get the upper hand. See, Satan is an opportunist. You guys know what an opportunist is, right? People that take advantage of opportunities that are set before them. And that's exactly what Satan does. He seeks to exploit the circumstances that he stumbles upon. See, Satan is like a master chess player. He's waiting for his opponent, you and me, to make a simple mistake. That's all he needs, a simple mistake. Let our guard down for a moment. That's all he needs. Open the door just an inch. That's all he needs. Open that door an inch and he will kick it down. 
for sure. And he will exploit the situation to its fullest. I mentioned earlier, 1956, Bobby Fischer went up against the 26-year-old American champion Donald Byrne. And it was one simple mistake on Byrne's part that allowed the 13-year-old to take advantage of him and win the game of the century. Well, in the same way, that's what Satan is looking to do to you and me. But here's the key. Are you ready? Here's the key. Instead of Satan being a master chess player, he is a master manipulator. And I think this word manipulator is a perfect word to describe Satan. And incidentally, just so we're all clear, Satan is a real being. The liberal theologians want us to think that, well, to understand evil, we created this being called Satan. He doesn't really exist, but it helps us, you know, understand evil. No, the Bible is very clear that Satan is a real being that is at work in this planet, on this planet. This word manipulator perfectly describes him. So here's what I want everybody to do right now. Are you ready? I want you to think of the best manipulator that you know or have ever known in your life, okay? Think about that person. It could be uh, somebody from your past. It could be somebody in your current life, your family, somebody that you worked with. But I want you to think of the person who you would say was the best manipulator you've ever met. You have that person in your mind? I'm not trying to manipulate you folks. (laughs) You can just say yes. You're like, he's trying to manipulate the situation. I'm not, I'm really not. Here's the point. I want you to consider that whoever you thought of, their ability to manipulate pales in comparison to Satan's ability to manipulate. That is what you and I are up against. If you thought the person that came to your mind was good, they pale in comparison to the enemy that you and I are up against every day. By the way, do you want to know what separates good manipulators from great manipulators? Very, very simple. You want to know what separates good manipulators from great manipulators? It is their ability to lie. It is their ability to lie. The best manipulators are great liars. And in case you didn't know it, who's the greatest liar ever? It's Satan. Satan. And that is why we call him the father of lies. You're familiar with this passage. You got to know it for spiritual. When we're talking about spiritual warfare, we got to go to this verse. You are of your father, the devil. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. You are of your father, the devil, and you, your will is to do your father's desires, his schemes. Remember what our verse says today? For, that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not unfamiliar with his schemes. And your will is to do your father's desires, his schemes, his plans. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This means that Satan isn't just a great manipulator. It means that he is the greatest manipulator. Again, I want you to contrast what we're up against here with a person in your mind who you consider the greatest manipulator that you've ever come across in your life. The greatest manipulator you have ever come across in your life pales in comparison to the ability of the one who is called the father of lies. This is, again, the gravity of, I'm trying to help us understand the gravity of what we're up against when we talk about Satan trying to outwit us. Let me ask you a question. If you were to go head-to-head right now in a game of chess against a chess master, what would your chances be? Be zilch, zero, right? Unless you're really smart in here, our chess master. But the point is that's similar. It's like we're going up against the best of the best. We're going up against the master of all masters. 
when we go up against Satan and we are dealing with him trying to outwit us. That makes Satan someone that believers need to take very, very seriously. Of course, we never want to give Satan more attention than he deserves. We don't ever want to do that, but neither do we want to underestimate what he is capable of. And he is capable of a lot. And this is important. Satan not only knows how to manipulate people, he also knows how to exploit situations to his advantage. You know, it has been said that most crimes are crimes of opportunity. You know what a crime of opportunity is? A crime of opportunity is when some guy's driving down the street and he sees somebody left their garage open and he goes in and steals the bike and takes the bike and the bike's gone. That's a crime of opportunity. The opportunity presented itself. Well, in the same way, Satan is always looking for opportunities to exploit the different situations that he comes across. For example, if Satan comes across a husband and wife who are too busy to communicate, he's going to exploit that situation. You better believe he's going to exploit that situation. If Satan comes across a believer who who has isolated themselves from other believers, you can bet he's going to exploit that situation. See, it really doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. You can bet that Satan will try to find a way to exploit it. Now, what I'm about to tell you is also incredibly important. Satan doesn't just try to exploit bad situations. He is more than willing to lay his traps even when life is good. And the best example of this is the Garden of Eden. There, in the Garden of Eden, things were perfect. There was no sin. There was no evil. If if Satan were ever going to put out a trap and try and get someone to fall in it, I suppose Eden's not the place to do it because everything's perfect. Try to get them at their weak point. And yet Satan is not at all deterred. Satan will set out his trap in the good times and in the bad. Adam and Eve fell right into the trap, his trap, into his scheme, There were things were perfect. You see, Satan will seek to leverage any and every situation at any and all times as a means to outwit you and me. This is what we are up against. And this is very important. You want to know why? Because some of you here today are in a really good place in life. Life is good. Things are going well. The waters are calm. Everything seems to be going good. Folks, if that describes you, Don't think, even for a moment, that you are necessarily safe where you are. Our enemy is powerful. He's vicious. He's smart, strategic, cunning, ruthless, and deceptive beyond your wildest imagination. You think you know great manipulators? They pale in comparison to the one that you and I are up against every day. And you know what? He doesn't play by the rules, and he's never not playing the game. He doesn't play by the rules, and he's never not playing the game. That first sentence should scare you. He doesn't play by the rules. You are up against an enemy that does not show mercy. He does not care about right or wrong. Gloves are off. He is vicious and evil in the worst kind of way. He does not play by the rules. He will have no mercy on you. At least the people that you know that are manipulators in your life, they might show you mercy at some point. They might go, you know, I have hurt you, I'm sorry, whatever. There's no hope of that here with Satan. He does not play by the rules, ever. But the second sentence is perhaps even scarier than the first. He's never not playing the game. And by game, I mean the game of manipulating believers. You are always in his crosshairs. 
He does not play by the rules, and he's never not playing the game. And this is, this is hard because I know me, and, and there's times when life is going well and things are going well, and what do I do? I quit playing the game. I let my spiritual guard down. I get lazy. I, life's good. I got it under control. Everything's great. And that is when I am in trouble. Folks, when it comes to your life, in the good times and the bad, know this. Your enemy is always scheming. He is always planning. And what he is planning is to destroy you and me. Of course, no one likes to be taken advantage of. I put some pictures up here of people who it looks like that, you know, when you're taken advantage of and somebody gets the better of you and and what do you do? You go, ah, I can't believe I, I let him do that. I can't believe I fell into that trap. You know, that feeling when you're just like, I'm so stupid. Why did I, why did I let that happen? You guys know what I'm talking about? No, (laughs) you don't, do you? Help me out here. Yeah, right. Amen. Thank you. We all know what it feels like. Listen, it's one of the worst feelings of the world when somebody takes advantage of you. With the advent of the internet, people are being taken advantage of every day all over the world. Think about how much effort goes into guarding our lives against email scams, phone scams, Medicare scams, IRS scams. Scams are everywhere. And perhaps in your life, you've fallen for a scam or two. And when you've fallen for that scam and you just go, I can't believe that happened to me. It's supposed to happen to other people, not to me, but it happened to me and I feel like such an idiot. In a very real sense, we live, you and I live with a hyper sense of awareness with regard to these types of scams. Literally, even 20 years ago, we were much more innocent, right? But then we started getting email scams and some of us fell for them, the phone scams and all the scams. And it's just like... Now this generation is hyper aware, are we not? We are hyper aware with regard to such earthly scams. But here's the point. If we are hyper aware regarding such earthly scams, how much more should we be aware, hyper aware regarding spiritual scams or what our passage calls the schemes of our enemies, his designs, his plans, his strategies? How much more should we be aware? Folks, it is one thing when someone on the internet is trying to scam you. It is another thing entirely when Satan has you in his crosshairs. Listen to what I'm about to say, because what I'm about to say I think is so true, but it's very, very powerful. What is amazing is that probably not one person in this room right now will fall victim to an email or phone scam this week. That's the good news. I bet you there's not a one person in this room that falls victim to an email or phone scam this week. But I bet you at least half of us will fall victim to the schemes of Satan before this week is up. He will set out a trap for you and for me. And I bet you half of us fall into them. And that means me. I'm not preaching at you. I'm talking to me. I'm sitting here worried about email scams and phone scams, as I should. I want to protect my family and my assets. But I cannot be blind to the fact that there is a greater scam and a greater schemer coming against me than just those on the internet, and that is Satan. And the likelihood of me falling into an earthly scam this week, although it be very low, the likelihood of me falling into a trap by Satan is very high. It is very high. Listen, as carefully as you guard your bank account from con artists, be all the more diligent to guard your spiritual life from the schemes of Satan. This is the enemy that we are up against He is very, very smart, smarter than everyone in this room. He's also far more experienced than anyone in this room. We have some people with great experience in this room right now. Some of you have walked with the Lord 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. You have fought the good fight and you are a person of great spiritual experience. 
But even if you have walked with the Lord for 80 years, no one understand this, your experience pales in comparison to the experience of the enemy that you are going up against. This means that we must stay humble because the minute that we think we're standing firm is the minute that we are most likely to fall into a trap. Paul said this in Corinthians, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful. Whatever you do in that moment, you be careful. Be careful that you don't fall, that you don't stumble, that you don't get taken advantage of, that you're not outwitted in that moment. Because the minute you think, notice what it says, if you think you're standing firm, no one understand this, you're up against an enemy that's going to, trying to outthink you. He's trying to outwit you. He's trying to take advantage of you, and he's good. He's very, very good. As a matter of fact, he is the best of the best. But here's the good news. There's good news in our passage today. I want you, maybe you didn't see it, but I want to point it out. Look what it says. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. Now listen, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, they were at a bit of a disadvantage over you and me. What do I mean? They were more naive than you and me. They didn't necessarily know who Satan was or what he was capable of. of. They had never encountered spiritual warfare. In the garden was the first real spiritual warfare that happened between mankind and Satan and his enemies. The first scheme Satan ever perpetrated on mankind was at the expense of Adam and Eve. He took advantage of them, our fathers, our father and mother. He took advantage of them. And even though that doesn't necessarily excuse Adam and Eve's decision to disobey, it can make us a little bit more appreciative of the unique situation they found themselves in. They were ignorant of the schemes of Satan. We, however, do not lack such knowledge of our enemy. There is no excuse for this generation. There's none. We have a record of Satan's activities from the dawn of time in our laps right here. You want to know the designs and scenes of Satan? God has faithfully recorded them for us. Adam and Eve did not have this. You and I do. As a matter of fact, this is what's fascinating. Oftentimes when we think about the schemes of Satan, we immediately go to the Garden of Eden. But Satan was scheming even before the Garden of Eden. What was the first scheme that Satan ever perpetrated? It was when he tried to raise his throne above God's, right? We read about this in Isaiah. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Remember in my heaven series, I said, where is heaven? It's up. It's north. You can go back and watch that series. It doesn't, does that not resonate with anybody? (laughs) Okay. It's online. It's free. Satan sought to raise his throne on high. Ezekiel gives us more insight into it. It says, your heart was proud because of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Here's what's fascinating. The Bible faithfully records for us the activities of Satan from the moment that he tried to ascend on high above God It then records for us his scheming in the Garden of Eden and in every book of the Bible all the way through the book of Revelation. We have an amazing blueprint for our enemy. We have a blueprint that perfectly describes his motives, his activities, his strategies, his plans, and his schemes. Folks, if we lack understanding in this generation or are unaware in this generation of Satan's schemes, it is not because we lack knowledge. 
It is because we are lazy or proud or something far worse. Dr. John MacArthur said this, believers dare not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. You dare not, we dare not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Listen, a person can be ignorant about a lot of things and get away with it. I tell people all the time, and I tell this, I'm not a smart person, I'm really not. School was hard for me, and I always tell people, I know next to nothing about almost everything. I literally do. I know next to nothing about almost everything. The only thing that I have somewhat proficiency in is the scriptures. That's the only thing. The only thing I proclaim to know is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That's all I really know. But here's my point. I can be ignorant in a lot of areas and get away with it. No harm, no foul. But there is one thing, folks, you do not want to ever be ignorant of, and that is the schemes of your enemy. God does not want us ignorant of the schemes of our enemy. Because if a person is ignorant of the schemes of the enemy, the repercussions aren't just dangerous. It's staggering. It's death. Satan is not an enemy that shows mercy. He does not play by the rules, and he's never not playing the game. He does not play by the rules, and he's never not playing the game. And folks... That is the whole purpose of this sermon series. This was an introductory message. Over the coming weeks, we are going to be spending time looking at Satan's methods, his strategies, his way of thinking, his designs and his schemes, his most common traps, and the things he does to get you and I to stumble. Folks, we don't ever want to find ourselves in a situation where we are unaware or unprepared. Again, ignorance may be bliss in many situations, but when it comes to the schemes of Satan's, ignorance is death. It is death. So whatever you do, don't miss this sermon series. Are you guys excited? We're going to hit hard. We're going to hit the ground running next week. So don't miss it. Get the word out. Know this, folks. Satan is scheming even now. The question is, will he outwit you? Will he outwit me? Let me pray. Father in heaven, as we leave here today, we are reminded that we are in a war. God, this world is not our home. We have set our hearts on things above and we God, we run the race that has been set before us. And until that day that you call us home, God, we stand alert. We stand ready to fight the good fight. God, protect us and watch over us. Deliver us from the evil one who is seeking to destroy us. In the quietness of your heart, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lift this coming week to the Lord and ask him to give you wisdom and to make your steps secure as you walk through this week as we are in this war. Spend some time in prayer now. So Father, as we go, make our steps secure. Lead us out of temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And Lord, till we return next week, help us to fight that good fight in every way. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And the church said, amen. God bless you. You guys have a great week. Be safe out there. We'll see you right here next week.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.